Yes, indeed. Dankeschön, and welcome to episode eight of the Yes Indeed podcast. That means thank you. It does. I'm thanking them for listening. <laughs> wow. I'm Brian. I'm Ben. We're the hosts of this here little podcast. And on this little here podcast, we have... An only... episode eight. And it's January 28th. Wow. Coincidence? I'll leave that up to you. Yes. This week, we're talking about some board games and some video games. On that docket, we've got Modern Art, a game about selling modern art. Uh, Pathfinder. Adventure, adventure card game. The adventure card game, which Ben and I have played for something like many hours. Sub, not, nope, Suburbia. That's Suburbia. That's a nice, we're a city planner and it's really fun. And then we're going to talk about XCOM. Enemy Unknown, Papers, Please, and Getting Over It in some ratio that will make more sense as we continue. Am I missing anything, Bernard, who's also Ben? Uh, just, a, just a hello and welcome to the Yes Indeed podcast at the beginning there. Dankeschön. Yes, indeed. It's like the spade without the shovel. It's like the kneel without the grovel. It's like the grovel without the boss. It's like the hair without the loss. It's like the loss without the life. It's like the sadness without the strife. So Modern Art is a game in which you are an art dealer from somewhere around the world. And you are trying to make money by selling famous artworks within the world of the game, which are actually made by real-world artists who are not super famous. But it, I, I, <laughs> yeah, you have to put on your pretend hat and pretend that these are famous paintings is what Ben's trying to, no, it's, but um, they're, but they're really good. I mean, yeah. the, so, so basically the game is an auction game where people on every turn, they get to choose an artwork from their collection. They get to put it up for auction in different ways, shapes and forms. And then at the end of the game, uh, whoever has the most money wins. Um, so that's that's all cool. But one thing that you mentioned that was kind of the coolest for you is is just the artwork itself. Yeah. So um, the game actually worked with five like actual artists and licensed a bunch of their works for the game. So that means that when you're dealing in this game, you like put up a piece for auction and everybody kind of like clamors around the table to see what it looks like um, because they're really interesting they're really um they did a really good job of finding artists that have a specific style where i to me one of the coolest parts of the game was you would see a painting and you'd be able to go wow that is a taller like yeah they really they really and it's and what's so cool was and we'll get into this more but we started role-playing a bit pretending <laughs> to be art dealers and and it's cool because because the art of a certain artist feels very consistent but it also feels like each piece is very unique. Yeah. So you can talk about how their their work is progressing in different ways. Like, oh, this is this is an early piece by, you know, this famous artist and and this is in, in the period of their life where they had just witnessed the traumatic event of someone uh, slipping on ice and landing on their bum bum. 
or whatever. <laughs> this is the first time that they learned that acid exists. Right, exactly. Because <laughs> then it got weird. Yeah. So yeah, the the basic mechanics of the game are that um, each round, who are, starting with one person, you are the auctioneer, and you pick one painting to put up for auction, the auction. But the really cool thing about it is that as that person, you get to choose both in terms of what artist you want to put up, what and uh, what painting of theirs. But then the other thing is that each painting card in your hand has a different auction style. So this game has five different styles of auction, which feel very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and is a really interesting. There, each one has its own interesting like way of being an auction. So as examples, there's one that's just an open auction where just it's floors open, makes bids, highest bidder wins. There's one where each person gets one uh, chance to to make an offer and that's it. There's it one goes. that's a secret auction. Yeah. There's uh, one where you have to put up two art pieces at the same time of the same artist. Um, so, so that definitely affects the dynamics of how a given round is working and keeps it fresh. So it's not just like, oh, we're auctioning again. And there's also the fixed price auction right. where the auctioneer sets the price. And then if, and if nobody buys it, they have to buy it themselves. Yeah. So, um, it's really cool cause, um, so basically on the fly, people kind of evaluate in real time what this painting is going to be worth. But the cooler part about that is that the painting isn't worth anything until the end of the round. Right. So the way that paintings are, the way paintings are worth money is the more paintings of a set that come out, uh, the more that painting is worth up to the three most popular. So we mentioned that there are five artists, but only three each round are going to be worth any money at all. Right. So there are situations in which if everyone's kind of like putting up a bunch of different artists from all five artists, that at the end, if only one or two works have sold of one artist, but five have another, then the, and there's enough competition from the other artists, then the one that you have two paintings of their work could be worth absolutely nothing. And the, the reason that works so well is that, you're as the auctioneer you're incentivized to put up a work of someone who's the most in demand in the moment because then you'll get more money right people pay you when you put a piece up for auction so there's this awesome of like they i'm putting up a Raphael, and everyone's like oh Raphael! oh wow that's gonna sell for a lot of, you're gonna be rich <laughs> um and that painting could be worth zero dollars right if if at the end nobody else puts up a Raphael. so there's you, people have varying degrees of like uh value on a certain card so you'll see some people bid way more than it would be worth if you sat down and like okay expected value of this because the other thing is that they are also bidding knowing what their own hand is. Exactly. So, so that's the, imperfect the, information. Exactly. This, the metagame of this game is insane where it's like, I'm going to really bid up this painting because I know when it's my turn, I'm going to bid put up two of them. And then if I make that piece seem really valuable and I put up these two pieces, then everybody's going to go in on this, especially if that happens early in the game. Then every, if nothing else is sold and one painting has sold three, Everyone thinks that that painting is going to be the hot, hot Shazam. Yep, agreed. Um, and and so the game takes place over four rounds. It plays pretty quickly. It's like a half hour game or something like that. Especially if people know the rules. Mm-hmm. The yeah. first game might be a bit longer than that, but once people figure it out, and as long as people don't sit there and go, "Well, okay, what's that?" And then the auctioneer can kind of. It's actually nice that the auctioneer can be like, "No, this painting's going to get sold unless someone says something in three, two, one. Someone can't think too much. 
because you don't have time. Well, and, and digging deeper into what the auctioneer is saying and how they're saying it, um, a huge part of our enjoyment of that game also came from role-playing because the game as a, as a context is very interesting, but it also is definitely like leaning pretentious. It's like we are buying and selling art, you know, and, and it's fun. It's fun to play that game. If you're a number crunchy person and just look at the math, but it's also to play that game. If you're making fun of very pretentious people who would actually spend a million dollars on a work of art. Um, and we had people from all over the world. Each, each kind of art collector is, is from a specific part. So we had someone who was doing an ambiguous Brazilian accent and we had someone else who was doing like a British accent and a French accent. And we had, we had someone who was being uh, from Spain, but they pretended that they were from Mexico and they were coming into Spain. And then I was really offensive to people from the South because I was an American and I was super Southern yeah. Texas. So, it was bad. Yeah. But I was the person who was speaking a British accent, and Ben chose not to acknowledge me. That's fine. Well, you you always you always were talking about Thatcherism. Yeah. This speech is clearly a take on Thatcherism. Yes, definitely. <laughs> man, I don't even know what that means, man. That's a small sample. <laughs> uh, you can buy our audiobook, Playing Modern Art with Ben and Brian. Vaguely offensive. Available on Amazon now. Never. <laughs> Both... Both now and never, <laughs> but it's it's a it's a really fun experience to play with people who uh, like that kind of intersection between artwork and money and stuff like that. And a, a bit like when we talked about Concordia, where you don't find out who wins to the end, you kind of have a sense of who's doing well because you'll be able to evaluate. Oh, that person got a really good price for that. Oh, this person sold that painting for more than it's worth. You'll have some sense of that, but at the end of the game is when you actually find out who's what money looks like, um, and that again is like a way to keep people interested in playing the whole time. Because um, we had some people who were pretty far away from the pack towards the bottom, but I think the game was still super fun for them. Because again, and this is like what one of our friends said is like, I don't care. I didn't care about winning. It was just really fun to do the auction stuff. Mm -hmm. So like being the person who goes $100 is just like an inherently really fun thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, so I see this game having a lot of value, even if you don't want to fall into the number crunching stuff. If you want to fall into the number crunching stuff, it's an amazing game because there's a lot of auctions are this like really your brain has to be on like high processing speed yeah there's a lot of systems working and yet and there's a time pressure because the auctioneer can call it at any moment exactly so you're trying to think about like upside versus like risk tolerance and like balance all those sorts of things um and again like the game though is really simple the rule book is tiny and the game takes very little time to teach it's mostly just about like recognizing the icons on the cards is pretty much the whole game mm -hmm. um so it's, I think it's actually a pretty decent intro game. I agree. A game that is maybe not a perfect intro game, but would be a perfect intro game to a much larger game, which folks have probably heard of before, called Dungeons & Dragons. Um, there's this game, Pathfinder Adventure Card Game, uh, which is made by this company called Paizo, who do a lot of sort of role-playing game stuff in the D&D universe kind of thing. Um, but Pathfinder Adventure Card Game is basically... Uh, an extremely streamlined version of all that. So the the idea of the game is it's cooperative. Uh, you're on a team of adventurers who enter into a scenario to defeat Banes, acquire boons, 
and corner the villain in order to defeat them. So what also, that actually means... It's fun. It is fun. So so basically, uh, you're, you're on an adventure. You'll be in situations where enemies will pop up that you have to fight or traps will, will activate and you'll have to avoid them. And uh, then there's also uh, lots of kind of goodies to acquire, like weapons and spells and magical items and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, and the, the core of the mechanics of the game are all based around dice and, and probability and stuff like that. And cards and cards so so uh for folks who have not played dungeons and dragons the big scary thing that has basically become synonymous with uber nerd everywhere like we are like we are um uh dnd is a game in which uh it's it's called a role-playing game because it's a lot about building a character and pretending to be them in a lot of different ways and what makes it really fun for people is that it really gives you a lot of creative freedom um, as well as having pretty complex systems around the combat and and other checks throughout. Um, but but the, the real part is that you have one person who's called the Dungeon Master, who basically is responsible for creatively responding to everything that any of the players ever does. So they'll kind of describe a place and then say, well, what do you want to do? And then you can do absolutely anything. You know, you can go to some peasants and start dancing with them. You can run chop down the sacred tree in the area you can just you know uh knock out people and try to sneak into the building or just like roll around in the dirt for a while like there's no there's nothing that like you can't do in a game like that um which is really cool because because a lot of games have a designer who's not present with you when when you're playing it and dungeons and dragons and other pen and paper role-playing games the 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 game designer is basically the person who's sitting there filling the role of the dungeon master who just builds the game as you play. Um, and it lets that environment be a lot more responsive because mm-hmm. it's not, there are fixed scenario things, but like if you're really creative, then the DM can go, Oh, that's awesome. Like awesome. Like I wish I had thought about that, but I haven't, but that was so clever that yeah, like roll for that. See if it works. So it's, so it's sort of like group storytelling as guided by randomization and a, an intense set of mechanics. Mm-hmm. So so what Pathfinder Adventure Card Game does is it takes some of the experience of playing Dungeons and & Dragons and basically streamlines it in a, in a really major way. So uh, the, the idea of going on an adventure and acquiring goodies and fighting baddies, that all, that all is still there. Um, but Dungeons & Dragons notoriously takes a really long time. So in order to have a fulfilling experience, you basically need to sit down for multiple six to eight hour sessions with the same group of people every time so that can be incredibly overwhelming to try to schedule especially if people are kind of busy and being adults or whatever um or children or children so (laughs) children's lives are busy too um so what pathfinder does is it basically takes away a lot of the creative freedom uh but it gives you that same sense of character progression and cooperation that makes a lot of Dungeons and Dragons really fun. So you're you're trying to race against the clock to explore these locations, um, which you do by flipping over cards, and then you end up having abilities that you are either better or worse at, depending on uh, what kind of a die you roll. So most people who haven't played a lot of games just think of dice as six-sided dice, but there's other types of dice out there. So there are four-sided dice, six-sided dice, eight-sided dice, ten-sided dice, twelve-sided dice, twenty-sided dice, and many more. But uh, and that's the segment 
listing the dice that are out there with Ben Zeiger. <laughs> it's not a bestseller at all. Um, <laughs> but but uh, I mean, so the the and and when Ben says that, it's they were like really thematic. So like, if you're a big barbarian person, you probably don't have much charisma. So anytime you need to like talk to someone and persuade them, you're probably gonna fail. You're gonna roll something like a four sided die. For strength, you're probably big and beefy, so you're gonna roll a twelve sided die. And you'll have a better chance of succeeding because all of the difficulties are like, okay, this check has a difficulty of six. So like, no matter what you roll, how you get there, the difficulty is six. So if you roll D12, it's a lot easier than rolling a D6 to get a six. Yeah, totally. And there are cool ways where teammates have abilities that help each other out on checks, which I think is one of the things that I like the most. Because um, I really love cooperative games where you're playing with some friends and you have moments where you can really be there for each other. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's an experience that I enjoy a lot. So, so that, that all is interesting. One thing to mention also about those characters and how if you're a barbarian or whatever, you have a lot of strength. Um, the, the idea of building a character and pretending to be a person is not as much in the game as well because the game pre-builds you characters essentially, uh, which, which again is a huge time saver and uh, also kind of fits in with its general feeling of like, Let's just let's just get you in the in the thick of things as fast as possible, uh, and yeah. That so. that being said, uh, the people can bring their own stories to these characters, mm-hmm. um, and depending on who you're playing with, you can you can get some like really creative stuff. So like uh, Mariziel is this rogue person who's like really sneaky, really acrobatic, really good, but like. Uh, all the mechanics in the game incentivize Mariziel to explore things alone and mm-hmm. be like a lone ranger. And you had an awesome experience where someone you were playing with had like this amazing Mariziel story. Oh yeah. So so again, kind of this is just emerging as Brian said from the mechanics of the game. She was on her own. She was kind of like exploring this location. Uh, she found a bridge and had an epic fight with a bandit on a bridge, and then like cut the bridge down and the bandit fell and then entered into this castle alone. You could feel like the mist around her. And then she walked in and she heard this like really slight noise behind her and turned around and there was a rogue that was trying to assassinate her. And then she said something like, stop walking like a dwarf. And then like dodged over and grabbed him and stabbed him and said, step, step lighter next time. And then she ended up facing off against the main boss and defeating him with one turn to spare, which was a lot of a high stakes, insane experience. Because yeah, um, the, the other thing about this game <laughs> is, as we mentioned, it's a card game, so each person has their own personal deck, mm-hmm. uh, and you'll have like a hand of cards, which are the cards you can play on a given turn. Um, those cards are generally really helpful. You play them, and then you have a better chance of succeeding at whatever you're doing. But the interesting and awesome balance mechanic of this game is that whenever you play a card. It's now gone for that scenario, and if you run out of cards in your deck... Your character dies. Exactly. So you're trying to balance like doing well, uh, moving through the scenario quickly, because certain cards let you explore multiple times in the same turn. You're trying to balance all of that with not being too hubris because you'll end up Dying. dead on the floor. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we, we pushed pretty hard. Again, the, the person who's playing Mauriziel... Um, she, she, right toward the end, was close to death. We were almost out of time. And then she discovered the main boss and faced off. And, and to finish, to finish a, a thought about that real quick, um, one thing that, that my friend mentioned who was playing with me 
was that it really struck her how sort of feminist the game was and empowering it was of of different people um because everyone is is valuable to the team no matter if they're big or small or strong or or smart or whatever else or a drunken bard or a drunken bard um (laughs) and and uh and then also the characters are designed in a way that's actually pretty empowering um so you don't have these like absurd video game style fantasy characters who are wearing like absolutely like like thin almost see-through cloth and like huge like insanely unproportional disproportional female bodies or whatever but like just like a pretty normal looking person who's really cool and also just happens to be a woman you know and the the other thing to mention about pathfinder is that you don't just play one scenario you play things on this big timeline of like adventures yeah and as as you progress you get more uh, items and and weapons and spells and whatever else to permanently put in your character deck and then you also level up and you get additional like a plus one to your strength check so or like more hand size so you exactly. have more options um so so yeah it's it's a game that definitely gives you that same feeling of becoming more powerful that dungeon dragons does or other role-playing games do uh so brian and i sank again dozens perhaps hundreds of hours into this game together and it was awesome to have characters who went on this journey with one another and became more powerful and were there for each other through really tough situations and it's yeah it's just a lot of fun and there's there's so many options too because you get the base game and you get like three scenarios with it Mm -hmm. which is just like the basic core but playing those scenarios with different characters feels really different so you could keep replaying that over and over again it'd be pretty fun but then you can also get if you feel like spent it's one of those things if if you want this to be your hobby it can be your hobby so you can buy a bunch of these like adventure packs where it's like there are six different adventure packs in the singular major adventure and you can do these and each adventure pack has like five missions so you can spend like 30 missions on like one adventure of pathfinder played again with another team which we've done and it's it gives you it's so much Completely time different experience. but it's it's a super different experience it's super awesome and then you start recognizing like villains and monsters and traps you run into so then there's this amazing like familiarity thing that kicks in in your brain mm-hmm. that's really satisfying so um there's just a lot to this game um it's awesome and while you were running pathfinder at you, board game sunday you were running uh, an awesome game that's very different called suburbia <laughs> the 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 joke that was going on while we were seeing who wanted to play in one, Ben was like, "All right, yeah, it's it's this game that's like kind of like Dungeons and Dragons, and you go on this quest, and you and your friends are gonna you're gonna need each other, and you're gonna like ho- hopefully overcome and find the villain and and route them out." And then uh, I was over there and I'm saying, "Well, we're playing Suburbia, which is a game about buying tiles for your suburb and placing them." <laughs> Uh, just trying to be a good city planner uh <laughs> and everyone was like that we had a moment where we were like how many people are interested in playing pathfinder everyone like, raised their everyone hand, hand. they're like how many people are interested in playing suburbia like two people did and then one person was like if i have sure. to I'd play <laughs> so but, but i think that, that that actually is is kind of oversimplistic because suburbia is actually very cool well it's it's so it is definitely like a number crunching like thinky kind of game. Mm-hmm. That is definitely true about it. But that being said, 
Um, it's super thematic and its mechanics are super reinforce its theme, mm -hmm. which is always a really amazing thing to see in a board yeah. game. So the way Suburbia works is um, each person sets up like a standard set startup for your suburb. So you have like one suburb tile, which is just like a few houses. You have a community park and you have like a heavy factory. And that's, that's everybody's initial startup. And then on your turn, you're going to buy a tile and add it to your suburb and then resolve whatever the implications of that are. Because um, the really interesting thing about this game is that um, there are a bunch of different mechanics, basically, where whenever you're talking about um, people, people are equivalent to victory points. So the more people who move to your suburb, the more prestigious it is, is generally like the theme of the game. So you can buy houses. Um, and if you have houses, then more people will live in your suburb. That's right. just like flat out. Because the idea is like, it's a suburb. So if there's housing, people will stay there because it's probably cheaper and then they'll commute into the city or whatever. Um, so that's one thing you can do. You can just buy these like green tiles, which are just like, you buy a condominium, you buy like a uh, luxury of mansion, retirement or, home. Yeah. Like you, you can build those sorts of things and all of them feel very thematic. Um, so like if you buy like really cheap apartment housing, uh, you're going to get a lot of people who live there. But if you put it two next to like a nice park or something then people are going to be like oh what is what's that over there so this is like this is like the it's kind of like satirizing the like the like our garden has perfectly sheared kind of <laughs> suburb mentality where it's like oh what is this low income housing Ew. <laughs> um and the game reinforces that with its mechanics which is super neat so there's like that there's that thing going on there are also um, there are also these like civic buildings, so you can get like parks, you can get elementary schools, middle schools, high schools. The idea being that like the more of them you have, they generally help your like green tiles out. So like you'll get bonuses for a school for as many, um, houses that you have. So if you have a bunch of housing and then you add an elementary school, all the kids are going to go to your elementary school. So then you're going to get a lot more people who move there. Cause it's like, Oh, Oh cool. There's an, there's an elementary school here too. Um, so there's that piece going on. They also build up, there are two kind of, uh, bars that you manage. There's an income bar. There's a reputation bar. So reputation is each turn, you're going to get that many people moving to your place. So if your reputation is five, you increase your people slash or 3.5. And then you also have income, which lets you buy tiles. So income you get usually through either these yellow tiles that are like, Industrial, so it's a garbage dump, which if you have near things, then it'll lower your reputation, but it gives you two income early game, which is a lot of income. Or um, a fast food restaurant. or Exactly. So there's like businesses too. So like there's the office supply store, which gives you more income for each office supply tile in the game. Mm -hmm. So that's the other really awesome thing is that these tiles don't just interact with where you place them for yourself, but it also interacts with other people. Right. So if you buy a homeowners association, then when anybody buys a home tile, then you get two bucks. The idea being that like, oh, you're collecting on the homeowners association. Well, so yeah, the, the idea is just to take a quick step back that everyone who's playing the game has a suburb of the, the same, same city. city. So, so the way that one suburb makes decisions is affected by the other one. So if you were a small municipality or something and you and you were making choices about what happened to a city um it would it would be influenced by 
oh, you know, that suburb next door, they don't really have a good kind of like downtown strip area. So if we make one of those, a lot of them will come to our town to do business and that will help us get more taxes, which will help us help the people who live here more, you know? So uh, again, from a from kind of like a, a more general perspective, the idea of you doing this sort of strategic solitaire style game where it also interacts with the other people you're playing with creates this cool dynamic of of str- str- strategy as as other people make choices too. Exactly, and th- and there's um, so one of my favorite examples from the game is you can get a fancy restaurant, and when you buy it, you get plus three income. It's a lot of income. You're praising in the rain, but then the way that tile works is you get plus three income, but for each restaurant built anywhere after this one you get one less income from the fancy restaurant so if someone else buys a fancy restaurant then they get three income mm-hmm. and you also lose an income right the idea being that like once once uh formaggios has been open for a while and then chino's opens up they're like oh have you oh, have, have you, you been to chino's have you heard of chino's oh, do you mean formaggios no 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 no, no, no. that's basic i i mean chino's <laughs> and it's also awesome because that includes like you could build a fast food restaurant after it too and then this is like people aren't going to the fancy restaurant because they're actually just grabbing KFC. Hey, there's there's a new KFC downtown. Do you want to go all the way to Formaggio's and pay like 30 bucks a meal? Absolutely not. Let's just go get some fast food. Absolutely. So <laughs> there's all these things going on in the game. So um, there's both like those global things. So like trying to pay attention to strategy of like, okay, so this, I it scales off the number of airports in the game. So if there are a lot of airports, this tile is really good. If there aren't many airports, then it's really bad. So some of that is making really early choices of like what you think is going to come out maybe or like what you think is good um so that's one piece of it and it is definitely influenced on what tiles are up for offer too um two is there's this like nice tetris element where different tiles interact with different things all about adjacency so if you put a parking lot and you surround it with businesses you're going to get more income from it than if you put a parking lot and you surround it with homes no one needs a parking lot so you're trying to Tetris your little environment uh, the best you can so that it's as efficient as possible um, and that you always have money you need to buy the tile you want. And then at the end of the game, it's all about getting these victory points. And this game has a really nice catch-up mechanic where if you pull out too far, then you get slowed down by the game. So each time you pass one of these little red bars in the scoring, you lose one income and one reputation. So it slows the rate at which you grow, which is a nice kind of catch-up mechanic. So someone can pull out to a really early lead, but unless they focus on balanced growth, then they're actually going to have no growth for a while. Right. So, so yeah. Yeah. There's it's, it's just a really cool... It's got a lot of things going on. There's also goals, which I didn't even mention, where, you know, they're, you're, each person has their own secret goal, and then there's public ones, so it's like fewest municipal buildings and then you, you see all these municipal buildings that come out and then when someone buys one it's this big like oh, yes they're out <laughs> of the running now but that might have given them more points than if they were trying to get the most municipal buildings or exactly whatever. yeah so there's there's all these little things going on um there's just really a lot of meat to the game um and again it just really feels thematically awesome like every title feels like what it should be so like yeah, um, you know, shipping containers is like for each blue tile you get money. So that's it's just everything is thematic. What's that you play? I hippie, play sports. Hippie, What's hippie, it you play? Hippie, I hippie, play sports. Hopping, 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 sports. Hopping. Yes, indeed. <laughs>
it's like the man without the cauldron. It's like the pity without the maudlin. It's like the maudlin without the plain. It's like the crazy without the insane. It's like the insane without the luck. It's like the Wolfgang without the puck. Video games. So Brian and I have a very complicated relationship with this game called XCOM Enemy Unknown. And basically what happened was at the end of one of our playthroughs, it was so emotionally devastating that we put the game down for four months, six months, something insane like that. And and basically, the take a step back, the idea of the game is... <laughs> that you've made contact with aliens as a, as a species, the human race has. The, the game literally starts out and it says, the, like the first cutscene is, there are, there are two possibilities. Either aliens don't exist or that they do. <laughs> <laughs> and then it definitely goes on on deep into the second possibility. Um, so so uh, things start out and uh, basically the, the entire world has decided to focus on this project called the XCOM Project, which is about basically resistance to aliens who have come hostile to invade the entire world. Um, and yes, to be clear, these aliens are bad dudes. Right. So They're not, they didn't come with flowers. They come in peas. No, they, they did not. They came with guns. So, so the idea is uh, it's this worldwide coalition, and uh, you're basically doing this military tactical uh, strategy game in order to... Uh, save the world so the stakes are high uh there's a lot there's a lot to balance out um and and what's cool is that they're they're kind of like two major components to the gameplay it's both kind of keeping everyone in the world happy and developing your your industry side in order to to thrive and and put up satellites and and help protect the world from incoming attacks but also this on the ground you know you're controlling just a handful of soldiers who are going in to try to either defeat aliens or rescue civilians or escort a really important VIP to safety. Uh, and, and it becomes this intense experience of, of uh, trying to make all of the choices perfectly because we play in a way that's probably a little masochistic almost. <laughs> well, uh, to take a step back for a second before we explain that, because I think that's important to explain, um, XCOM was definitely the first game for me and probably for a lot of people to have such different styles of game in the same game. Because essentially what happens is when you're on a mission, it's you take your four to six combat units and you go and like try to sweep and take out the enemy resistance, which in itself is an awesome game because it's all about like finding cover, getting the right strategic position, preparing yourself for what could be out there to try to take down these aliens in a way such that you lose as few recruits as possible, that you save as many civilians, whatever. Um, so there's this really nice, like it's turn-based there's, you can spend all the time you want thinking in the world. And it's a game really about like slowly creeping up and uh, like, trying to figure out what your like best avenue of attack is. So it's got that whole mechanic. That's only half the game. So that, in addition to that, then you go from these missions where you're these soldiers then you go to being like the head of the XCOM project and you get to like manage the finances and, and like try to pick strategically like what's the next thing we're going to research so that we can get a handle on the alien problem or do we want to make our soldiers better to fight the aliens so that we can survive better or you know do we want to have ships that can shoot down motherships better 
but you're trying to balance all those things. You're saying, okay, I have a limited amount of money. Do I want to launch satellites so I can see when folks are incoming so I can shoot them down? Do I want to spend money on getting new recruits? I need new recruits. I have very few remaining. So you're, you're doing this amazing like strategy game accounting layer on top, which is super cool and feels like it's very ripply, like depending on the arc of when you get these things in your various playthroughs, the game feels very different mm. of like what order you choose these things. So right. it does, it feels very tangibly important and impactful. Right. And and the two interact with each other in interesting ways. So if you perform really well on a mission, you might get more materials to help research, be able to uncover new alien weapon technology that you can use. And if you get a new upgrade to your units, then when you're out in the battlefield, then they'll be able to perform better. Um, and the whole thing is just like incredibly simple interface, like really powerful animations. When you uh, have a character who who gets a kill on an alien, the camera sweeps around them, and and you watch them kind of like gunning down this alien with all they have. And it's... so you you know right away when you when you click on that shoot button and you get that sh- that like kill shot, you're like. Oh yeah, because it's all it's all based around probability, also. So yeah, so that's the other thing is that if you try to fire an enemy or an enemy tries to fire at you when you're behind full cover, there's a low percent chance that your shot's gonna hit. It's like twenty five percent. So if you want to like gamble, that's a thing you can do. But it is a lot about like finding the tactical flank and trying to get those shots that are more like seventy percent or eighty percent, which you can still whiff. Exactly. We know that too well. <laughs> so, so to get a bit into how Brian and I play this game, uh, there's there's uh, different difficulty modes that affect how much damage things do and how expensive things are and whatever else numbers on the back end. Um, there's also this additional option where you can play on what's called Iron Man mode, uh, which basically means it's permadeath. So if you have a soldier who's in, in the middle of a combat situation and they get outflanked or something and an alien hit, like shoots them in the head, they're gone, you know? And we've talked about that a bit with uh, Orkies, Middle-Earth, Shadow of War. But, but Permadeath raises the stakes in this insane way because every soldier's life is so valuable, not just because you become emotionally connected to them, but also because uh, they've, they've become more powerful over time. So when you get into the more difficult situations later in the game, if you're bringing a handful of rookies... They're not going to perform well. Like you need, you need people who've been in the field who have some extra abilities that can help them through those situations. Well, and the other thing that we've talked about before is uh, when we talked about Super Mega Baseball. Is the other thing that is awesome about XCOM is that you can name your soldiers. Right. So <laughs> that there's that layer of like tactically we need them for our missions. Blah blah blah. Actually, the reason you care is because you've given them names and you have strong feelings about them. So right. like there are all these stories of like. You know, people name their XCOM crew after their close friends and family, and it's like, well, Judy, you didn't make it. Yeah. Uh, and it's not even that Judy didn't make it. Judy was was surrounded on all sides, and you watched her die. You know, it's so intense. Yeah. And then you can also do like the celebrity route, where you're like, oh yeah, this is Britney Spears, Sergeant Britney Spears, get in there. You know, <laughs> like sniper extraordinaire Britney Spears. Um, well, so so Brian and I basically have two two naming conventions when it comes to XCOM. So we, we have one group who are women, for the most part, who we give really cool names to. And they get we make them tough. We get them in the, the toughest situations. And then the men are more... What's the exam- examples, Ben? So, so uh, currently we have a run going with uh, 
a soldier whose name is Savage Slayer and Bertha Bloodbath. And like we've had characters in the past named Sheriff Hoopenbopper, uh, which is our one of our personal favorites of all time. <laughs> we have Lethal Hot Sauce. <laughs> so many, so many cool names. And then, and then we name basically most of the the male characters more derpy names constantly scratch himself <laughs> he's constantly scratching himself <laughs> and uh and squarish face bones <laughs> who has squarish face bones squarish face bones did not make it very long no and eats eats own earwax <laughs> eats own earwax that's a new one um we had a character who had like big blonde hair so then they got named simba lion king <laughs> right and then simba lion king died real quick and then we got a new character and we were feeling really sad about Simba, so we named the new character Fake Simba. <laughs> right, and Fake Simba was amazing. Uh, so, do so you want to talk about our big final campaigny awesomeness? Yeah. So, so we've we've done two really big campaigns of XCOM together, and the first one was the one where Sheriff Hoopenbopper was was kind of like the the leader. She became a major, I think. Yeah. Um. And and we were in one one mission, and we were doing so well. Uh, but we had one mission where we went in to rescue civilians and the aliens had become very powerful and we wanted to save as many civilians as we possibly could. So we rushed in and put ourselves in really risky situations in order to rescue the civilians. And one by one, we watched all of our soldiers die. And the final, the final moment with us learning that you, the, the mission didn't end when, whenever you wanted, but you actually had to get back to the, to the evac spot. Uh, Sheriff Hoobenbopper was fighting her way out alone. Alone, and then uh, an alien busts through a wall. Well, Sheriff, we we oh, man. our initial we hadn't lost a mission in a long time in that run through. Um, we were doing like super well actually, and then all of the people had gotten gunned down. And then at a certain point, we were like, we have to evac. Yeah, we need to do it. We need to fail this mission. So, so where do we need? To, okay, we need to go back to the start. Okay, so Sheriff, you're gonna go around the corner. And you're gonna try to like make it hero run back and then we'll excavate we'll get you out um that was the idea but then we like turned the corner in the back alley and there were aliens waiting there and then we got we had to watch sheriff get gunned down in front of our eyes oh it was so sad and that's the one that stopped us playing for a while but then we got over it and we we did another run so so this most recent run had a really epic conclusion because one thing that we took away from our last run is that there's kind of like a main quest line of, of research projects you can undergo and we focused on that and kind of rushed that this time and we had a, a number of our favorite characters had gotten killed in action which was pretty sad but <laughs> like one of our one of our male snipers was named Nata woman and their <laughs> their tagline was deep every once you get to a certain level you get promoted they had a nickname you get a nickname so this person's nickname was woman was demon, demon. So then we'd be like, demon woman. And then we're like, no, it's not. It's not. A, I'm not a demon woman. Not a demon woman. <laughs> but, but demon woman got killed. Who was uh, not actually a demon woman. Good. Um, and we also had Tanky McBoom Boom. There's so many great lives who were lost. And Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Uh, rip in peace. And so the, the, uh, we did have enough powerful recruits to progress far enough into the game that we got to the final enemy base or at least Maybe. like a really <laughs> a really advanced enemy base you need to like research a special key that lets you get in there it's... and there's there's a lot before that but yeah we we got to this moment we had our top our top soldiers and a robot who are and, all well and one rookie and one rookie 
and and oh man, this final assault we had we had the the team was just like creeping forward very carefully and slowly, and then we got flanked and and it was terrifying and and uh, the the like seasoned man soldier was like I got this and like took a shot and missed, and then the rookie stepped up and was like boom and got the kill. Actually, that's how that's done. <laughs> So the rookie, and then the the guy was like, "I respect you, rookie." Yeah. And then and then the robot came around and got the flank over from the other bridge. Oh man, it was so intense. And um, but but still, this this scenario was really long. Mm-hmm. So we were kind of progressing, but then we were kind of losing like one member, like at a time. Yeah, people would take hits in a fight, and and our, and we'd only be able to heal so much because one of our our most powerful uh, medics, Lethal Hot Sauce, was was still wounded from a previous encounter. Uh, so we only had one. Uh, we had fake Simba. We had fake Simba, who is an epic healer, and fake Simba was was leading the charge. But one by one, we we kind of like had one wrong play that like slipped us up and and got a, our our units hurt or or even killed in some instances. And we watched them all go down one by one. And we had this one moment. Oh man, we were right toward the end, and this giant enemy came out with twenty health, which is a lot in this game, and. Then we did the we like crunched all the numbers and did all the math and and the person who discovered it was our sniper who was right in the middle of, of the action. Our sniper oh, always injured. Always injured. Who was always injured? Um, but this time, but this time the injury went a little too far because what happened was we did we did the math. Everyone had taken their turn except for our our rocket specialist. And you you can do one of two things with the rocket specialist. You can shoot their like big heavy gun which does five damage, or you can shoot a rocket which does six damage but it's guaranteed guaranteed also the enemy only had six health. six health left so we, so we, we couldn't shoot it to death we either rocketed it or we we couldn't do it and and uh and uh, uh always injured was was down to two health they were they were really feeling it so and <laughs> standing right next to the enemy oh no so we what did we do then so we so we took the the and the rocket obviously explodes it was a big area of effect so we we hovered over the spot that would that would take out this extremely powerful enemy and then of course in the blast radius was always injured and we and we talked about it we deliberated again because there's no time pressure and we decided that the, the enemy needed to die because more more lives would be saved than lost so we we clicked on it to to do it and then we got this prompt from the game that said, "Warning: Firing this shot will will affect your own soldiers. Please click confirm if you really want to fire." And we were just like, "Ah!" And we just click confirm, and then oh man, it was so bad. You just you just blew up in front of our eyes. Oh, it was horrifying. And then we went. And that moment, we were down from six down to three. Yeah. And then we were overrun. There were these, like, six aliens who had come with this big mothership. All of us were, they were kind of surrounding us. So it was just constantly Scratch himself and uh, Simba. Fake Simba Simba and 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 our robot. robot. Who was steadily losing health and couldn't couldn't be healed. And so, but then they, they mounted this epic defense where they were gunning down dudes left and right. And there was this moment where constantly Scratch himself... Just had to do like a normal amount of damage. We had the perfect amount where each, if each person took a shot and got a kill, that they would be safe. 
So we had we had fake Simba take a shot and it was fine. And the robot took a shot and the robot was amazing, but it was slowly dying. Robots way and, better than all of our units. Right. So the robot so the robot took a shot and, and got their shot. And then constantly scratch himself had a dude right in front of them and they took their shot. And it didn't it did do one any less damage. damage than they needed. <sighs> so then the enemy went and then killed constantly yeah, scratching right himself. Right in the head and fell over the fucking And then it was down to robot and fake Simba. And, and and uh, and they advanced slowly on the on the final position, and they finally saw that final enemy, and, and it was extremely powerful. We had the flank, we had so height we, advantage. We got our our shots off, and and then then the, the robot went and immediately killed Robot. Yeah. So so yeah, the the super powerful alien. It was just the two of us. We had done a bunch of damage to the alien, like within the being able to be killed in one shot and then the the alien took a shot at the robot and it completely got destroyed and then it was oh fake simba fake simba on the, the, final on the balcony on the balcony final boss for sure for all our playthrough and and fake simba had one one shot and it had an 80 percent chance to hit and he pulled the trigger and, and it missed, missed. <laughs> so the alien possessed his mind and then we got destroyed and then we were so distraught that we just quit the game and collapsed onto the couch and just, like, couldn't move. But we go into that because... So that was very affecting. But it's... There are a few video game experiences, or and especially, like... You don't get that in, like, a TV show or a movie or whatever, where you're so insanely invested in the outcome of the thing that it, like, hurts your, your body to, like... Do you want to fire this rocket and hurt your teammate? Confirm. Like... <sighs> That's that's brutal. Like this final like epic mission, this entire mission felt amazing because it's this. So normally XCOM is this big open sprawling map where it's all about like spreading out, making sure you advance slowly, like being really calculating. Then when you're then when you hit spaceships, it's this like okay, we need like team A, team B, like coming up from either side. We need them to be ready. Um, it's like very it's it's this entirely different thing and this mission was like one giant spaceship that just kept going long wise so it was very like a tactical like sweep and it just felt every, every second just felt like i don't feel good i don't feel good i don't feel good <sighs> so scary and then but we were we were making it and every and everything that happened was uh due to a certain amount of randomness but mostly it was us so when we moved a soldier to a spot we were the one who clicked go here and then they went there and then they turned out to be really exposed and we had to adjust as best we could, given the new information we just discovered. But sometimes it just wasn't enough. It's so addicting. So. XCOM is... it For a lot of people, it was a game changer. But it, it is really... This game first came out in like 08 or something, like a long time ago. So if you're interested in checking it out, you can get original XCOM for real cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you need a particularly good computer to run it either. There aren't that inten- intensive graphics. There's also... XCOM 2 has come out now. Um, which which takes a lot of the things from the base game and I think improves them generally. Yeah. There's in addition to Enemy Unknown, there's also um, another Enemy one, Within. Enemy Within, which is the same base game except enemies are changed up for, mm-hmm. a bit differently, and it uh, kind of incentivizes you to be a bit faster in the missions, uh, which I've heard is really interesting. So there's a bunch of XCOM out there if you're interested. Um, but again, I think you should get one of the first ones just to. Even if the second one might be better, I think just playing through on the first one to see if you like it, because you can get them for so cheap is a good option. 
So two two other games we played, which we had kind of interesting relationships with, uh, that are both kind of soul crushing games in different ways. One is this game that came out a while ago that we both both played on our own for a bit, but we we're doing a playthrough now together called Papers Please, and and Papers Please is a game uh, that was kind of one of the first kind of independent games that really started to make people think that video games might be more than just kind of like kill thing to win game um where papers please you're playing as a border patrol agent basically or border crossing guard who is uh stationed at a checkpoint in a fictionalized country that's sort of loosely based off of kind of like soviet union uh intense from the top orders and strange corruption stuff and whatever but you're just a lowly a border patrol person and the so, entire gameplay is people come to the booth with paperwork and then you have to choose whether to admit them to the country or not yeah so each day starts out and you're given like a strict directive of what you need to do that day so like the rules for that day are uh we're not letting in foreigners only people from our country only um so then you hit the thing you the screen goes up as you start your day and then the first person comes up they present their document you see it's not from your country so then you say, uh, actually, we're not letting in foreigners today. And then they go, can't you please just let me in? I was waiting this line for, for eight hours and my son is sick. And then you can let them in. You'll get a fine. Or you reject their passport. And then they usually say something. They tell you off and then walk away. Yeah. And, and it's and it's what a really smart thing that the designer did, which didn't add a lot of complexity to the game, but like makes you feel things very differently is that when you let in a certain number of people uh, correctly, who should have been let in, then you get money, and then you at the end of every day you you have uh, your your family at home, and you get to choose whether you feed them or heat the home, and that affects how much money you have, but also their status. So you you start to really feel mechanically this experience of do I make choices that are more humanitarian to help people in general that will hurt me and my family personally? Or do I actually want to uh, look after my family and make sure that they're healthy and, and fed and probably have to do some things that are pretty questionably ethical the whole time? And at, at its core, in terms of mechanics of what's going on in this game, it is very much like, remember what you're supposed to do on that day and then kind of execute on it. So you're like, okay, is this passport expired? Does this person look like they do in the picture? Is Does the name match with their various documents? So you're trying to do like all those little detail-oriented things. But in the entire time, you're feeling like a bit uneasy about it. Yeah. And especially if you get excited about like detaining someone for having out-of-date information, you kind of, you go, what, what am I... Why am I happy right now? Yeah, it's kind of messed up. Well, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even say this is a fun game. It's just a deeply engaging I, game. I you know? find it fun. Well, I, I find it to be, as you as you're describing, kind of uneasy. You know, like you're constantly facing these strange moral ethical dilemmas that are really complicated. You know, like if if there's someone who is uh, a known person who is fighting for freedom in the country. And they come to your booth and you have the choice to let them in or not. Like, that's a very complex question. Or even someone who uh, 
as as I said, like they, their son is sick. They just want to see their son um, who who needs them. Uh, if you if you choose to follow the rules, you'll turn them away, and then probably end up hurting your own family. So I I don't enjoy that experience, but it, I I just like every second of it. I'm 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 with it. Like I want I want to see what happens next. And the because there's even there's a point pretty early on. I don't want to spoil too much, but this is pretty early where um, the newspaper comes out and it says that there's this person who's convicted of a crime. Um, and there, and then your directive that day is if you see that person, you should detain them. Mm-hmm. And then when they come, then they say, please don't do that. I'm innocent. And then maybe even offer you a bribe or something. Yeah, but you don't really know where the truth lies because you realize pretty quickly that the newspaper they put out it's propaganda. It's free, yeah. and it's it's like the paper of your government. It's not free press. So you're never really sure of what you're doing is right. That being said, to me, it's still really satisfying to execute on these like very technical, detail-oriented things. So to me, that's that's the bit that's satisfying, but it is like, it's usually like after I'm done playing where I'm like, huh, that's kind of messed up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, and And to put that in a nice juxtaposition spot, so we were playing papers please and that that was like the right kind of detail oriented for me at the same time we were playing this game called getting over it with bennett foddy so um, which is also a detail oriented (laughs) game that is much more oriented towards ben's kind of detail oriented than my kind of detail oriented so we both both brian and i had heard about this game for a while and brian decided to to get it and and have me give it a spin because it was certainly not the kind of game that brian would enjoy um but essentially it's a it's a pretty simple game where you play as a man who is stuck from the waist down in a cauldron and simple. you're trying to climb a mountain of increasingly abstract things with a hammer. Like simple. A sledgehammer, pickaxe thing. Um, what are the controls? So the controls is just moving the mouse. So <laughs> so the idea is that wherever you move the mouse, that's where uh, the, the man in the cauldron moves his hammer and... And then the hammer has extremely good friction. So when you rest it on a piece of rock or a pipe or a barrel or whatever you end up using to climb this mountain, uh, you are able to to move yourself uh, up with it. And, and you have insane upper body strength. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> is that this is all po- made possible by the fact that you're absolutely bloody ripped from the top up. So, so you basically can, using just a tiny bit of, of your hammer connecting with a little bit of rock, like very gently and, and easily lift your entire body and this cauldron up, basically using your wrists and biceps only. Um, it's not a game that goes for realism. So... So basically, you you have this like mesmerizing thing where you're slowly trying to climb this mountain by gently moving your character and pushing your character up um, in different ways. And the game is designed by somebody who wants you to fail to a certain extent. It, it, so um, <laughs> the word pain comes to mind. This is this is one of those games that's designed to be hard and yeah. like definitely markets itself as like. This is a hard game for people who hate themselves. Right. So so uh, there's definitely a certain subset of games that are coming out that are much more experience-driven, that like, feel very rewarding and engaging. And there are other games that are just challenging. And the, the thing that makes a game like this, uh, the difference between kind of being punishing and just being difficult, is that 
the the mechanics don't really change all you do is move the mouse and he moves his hammer and you can always see enough to get a sense of what you should be doing and then it's just a matter of figuring out enough about how to move this guy with this cauldron strap to his body to be able to get up the mountain and it's it's actually there's this really amazing sense of progression that we've been getting where Mm. when you first start out it is really like okay how do i do anything right and then you get to a certain point where you're like I not only know how to do everything up until where I've gotten so far, but I can do it repeatably and reliably. Because you have to, because you fall, and then you have to start over. So The, the level is designed in such a way that usually if you fail, you f- don't just go back to where you were five seconds ago, but you go back to where you were... At the beginning of the game. More or less. Um, and the, the kind of world record speed run on this thing is two minutes. So if you know how to do it, you can do it fairly quickly... But we've probably already sunk five hours into this thing, and we're probably about 40 to 50% of the way through it. And the, the, <laughs> the other thing that's super nice about this game is that uh, it's narrated by the game's designer, Bennett Foddy, who um, he only ever really chimes in when you've either like come to the same area a bunch of times or you've fallen and failed. <laughs> so he's kind of cherry-picked a bunch of these really interesting and funny quotes about... like. The happiness won't come until the pain stops, but that happiness can come from knowing that the pain will stop one day, and then it'll be like Mar- like Martha Stewart or like whoever yeah, said yeah, it. Yeah. Um, Edgar Allan Poe. And sometimes they'll say they'll they'll like play a snippet of song. So like we've had it stuck in our heads because a lot of times when you fail, they'll play a different rendition of this song called "Going Down the Road Feeling Bad," which goes a little something like. Going down the road feeling bad. I'm going down the road feeling bad. It's just it's it's sort of rubbing your face, you're like wound with sand, but it's also just kind of soothing. But and... it starts out kind of supportive and then kind of <laughs> starts rubbing your face in sadness. Um but in like really funny and interesting ways, like I really feel like the game is there's a ton added to the game from Bennett's narration occasional narration i agree um and yeah just like moments where he's like i don't i don't want this game to be interesting or fun all the time i want it to be a bitter experience like coffee that you have to learn to appreciate um where you're like oh, cool um, also ow it hurts yes <laughs> also yes this game is a bitter experience um so yeah this is like so not for most people but there's a subset of people who it's not just for, it's like super for. Yeah. Um, so it is really cool. And it's definitely, if it is intriguing to you at all, I think a, a very good way to experience it is through like a let's play or like watching someone do it on YouTube. Because um, even in the game, they're like, most people will be watching this either on Twitch or on YouTube. Um, so you can be one of those people. Um, because it is, it's inherently, it's a very mesmerizing thing to watch and take part in. Because it is, it, it scrambles your brain. It's 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 just mind bending the fact that it works and it works the way that it does. Because you look at what you're able to do and you think about the fact that all you can do is move your mouse. That's it's it's amazing to me. Every time we play, I'm kind of flabbergasted by what you can actually do in this game with so few controls. Mm-hmm. So that's it, episode eight. You seen the books? Books like the f- library. Of Congress. Bye. Art. What What is is art?
<laughs> are it's we sellable? Are we our are art? We, are we our art or aren't we our art? Whatever, whatever that means, you can sell it. I want to role play that sentence as a seal. Anyway, um, so <laughs> that might get cut. Um, <laughs> so modern art is a game. I'm not cutting it. Okay, well you get to your. I'm gonna cut this now. 